0: At the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview Long Island, the law firm of Decalator Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who is the author of five books, including Mount Rushmore of the New York Mets, the best players by decade to wear the orange and blue, miracle moments in New York Mets history. So you think you're a Mets fan. When Shea was home, the story of the 1975 Mets, Yankees, Giants, and Jets, and Simply the Best, the story of the 1929-1931 Philadelphia Athletics dynasty. He is the Director of Marketing and Communications at Brooklyn's Friends School. You know him as the host of one of the top-rated baseball shows on the 365 Sportscast Network, BT Talks Baseball, heard here each and every Sunday night at 7 p.m. right here on this station. Above all, I get to call him my friend. It is a thrill to welcome him back. Of course, we're talking about the one and only Brett Topel. Welcome, Brett.
1: Mark, so great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Always awesome to talk to you. So you know what? It's so interesting because social media has spawned so many Awful things. Cats playing piano, the color of the dress, Yanni or Laurel. But on the other hand, you get these great topics like the Mount Rushmore of sports. And in 2015, Major League Baseball embraced that. And they asked voters to vote for each franchise Mount Rushmore, meaning just like the actual mountain where Mount Rushmore has, you know, the 60-foot heads of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln, obviously considered four of the greatest men of our country, Um, they asked you know, Major League Baseball fans to pick the four greatest players from each franchise. You take that one step further with the Mets. Can you tell us how you adapted that idea and went further for this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then first of all, thank you for having me on. And and Mike, great to speak to you as well. Um, You know, I was always fascinated by the whole Mount Rushmore idea. Just like you said, the four greatest of anything. And you can really apply it to whatever. Mount Rushmore of of rock bands, of of British invasion, of of, of Mets, of, of, of pretty much anything, <clears throat> and but but the, the hard thing about calling the Mount Rushmore is if, if you only have four, it's really hard to to consider everybody, right? Like the Mets have been a franchise since 1962, but that still now spans generations, and I thought it would be a, a, a kind of a a neat idea if you could do a Mount Rushmore by decade, because, you know, my father's Mount Rushmore is not necessarily the same as my Mount Rushmore. And I also thought, you know, one of the greatest things about uh, sports and baseball in particular is causing controversy and Mm -hmm. causing conversation and, and what better uh, conversation? I mean, I had to listen to, um, you know, my grandfather was a, a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan, but for some reason he decided to to have the argument every single time he was over my house of who was better, Joe DiMaggio or Willie Mays with my father. And and to me, those arguments, and, and I say arguments in, in you know, in, in quotes, air quotes, because they're discussions and they're fun discussions about sports and rivalries and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I thought it would be a real fun thing to take a look at, at the, the the best four players by decade. and uh, And so that's what I did.
0: So it's interesting because the forward of this book is by one of the most respected authorities on the New York Mets, Greg Prince, and it's a tremendous piece about Joan Payson. As there's no Mount Rushmore of owners, I thought it was really nice touch. Can you share with some of our younger listeners who might not even know who Joan Payson is a little bit about her? And it's also interesting because after that, you know, after I read the book and the forward, I just scrambled to see if there was an autobiography of Joan out there. And there is. Joe Durso wrote a book, but you can't find it anywhere. But so many of the, the younger Met fans have no idea who Joan Payson is. So could you tell us why it was important for you to have... A, Greg Prince, write the forward, and B, you know, why he chose uh, Joan Payson.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're right. Uh, you know, not not too many people know uh, too much about Joan Payson these days. Of course, she was Joan Whitney Payson, an heiress, uh, a female owner, sports owner, long before uh, that was in style, to say the least. Um, and it's it's funny, I'll, I'll mention in a second, I have a, a funny connection to that family, but that was... Really, neither here nor there. When, when uh, you know, I decided to write this book. But you know, she was somebody who was an art collector. She was this beloved figure. Um, you know, when she when she was the owner of the Mets, and um, she was always kind of seen. You know, she she was never. Um, I don't exactly know how she was when she owned the Mets, but she wasn't necessarily young. And she, but she always had this kind of grandmotherly way about her. Her and Casey Stengel, who was the first manager, of course. Uh, of the Mets got along famously. And, and there was a a lot of photographs taken. She wore these big floppy hats uh, to sit in the, in the, in the first few rows in the owner's box. And she was really one of those, you mentioned there's no Mount Rushmore of Mets owners, because to be honest, there is no Mount Rushmore of Mets owners, but there would also be, I feel no Mets as we know them. uh, If it wasn't for Joan Payson, who, you know, uh, in the early days really took care and, and, and loved her players, and loved her managers, and loved her coaches, and it was really a, a family affair. And that's why the, you know, the 62 Mets, the, the all-time losingest team in history, uh, is not a team that's looked on, looked upon as a, a terrible team, but as this lovable team. And I think Joan Payson and certainly Casey Stangle were were a big part of that. Um, as far as Greg Prince goes, Greg Prince, in, in my mind, as you mentioned, uh, is second to none when it comes to authorities on on the Mets. He's written some tremendous books himself. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be on a couple of, of radio shows with Greg, and I've gotten to know him over the years. And I actually, uh, along with uh, my editor for the book, Jason Katzman, uh, you know, we, we both thought it would be a great idea to write something about Joan Payson. Now, I had a sort of a tangential relationship with, with Joan Payson's family because I got to know her grandson, uh, Dan Relay, very well, um, and— Uh, You know, so it was really nice to be able to share this finished piece with him. But but, you know, when I was deciding to for the preface, I asked Greg if he would write something about Joan. And, uh, you know, I was I was humbled that he agreed. And, uh, you know, I I didn't really have an idea of of which direction he would go and uh, was extremely, extremely happy, certainly with uh, with with what we ended up with. and, And, you know. Uh, you know, Greg. I mean, I, I literally not one word needed to be changed of Greg's writing. It, it is it is verbatim from his from his computer to the pages of of my book. And I really think it's a uh, you know a great way uh, to get that book started, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Absolutely is. Anytime a forward has you scrambling for you're checking the internet for a, a full blown book about what the forward's about. You know, it's written well. Um, so I think you're maybe ten or maybe a little more. You know, years younger than I am. So the 60s don't really exist for you as far as day to day fandom. My points of reference start with 1966. So how do you come about you know, with the Mount Rushmore for players you never saw play within that decade? And what were some of the criteria you used to come up with that top four?
1: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess <laughs> for good or for bad, there's not a lot of options in the 1960s for the New York Mets, and they don't really – the fact that your frame of reference starts in 1966 is, is just fine because prior to, you know, Tom Seaver getting there in 67, there was really nobody who would have ever approached a Mount Rushmore, uh, let alone, uh, you know, professional status for that for that matter. But, you know, I think that, that what ended up happening in 69 really helped shape uh, what the Mount Rushmore of the 60s was. Um, you know, uh, uh, Seaver and Kuzmin and uh, Cleon Jones to me were, were three, three, you know, gimmies that were layups, if you will. I don't want to mix my sports metaphors, but, um, you know, uh, Seaver certainly, uh, you know, spanned two Mount Rushmore's, as did Kuzmin for the match because, you know, from, you know, they, they they were so dominant in the latter half of the 60s uh, into the 70s. And to me, uh, the, the person that had to round out the, the Mount Rushmore of the 60s was, was Ed Cranepool because never one of the best players in the league never really one of the best players on the team but he was there from the very very beginning you know he got called up uh as a teenager uh in 62 and um you know was there all through the 60s and, and actually all through the 70s as well um his last year with the Mets was 79 but you know he is somebody who you know if 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 there was a a Mr. Met uh that wasn't that didn't have a giant baseball head it was just a player then I think that probably would be Ed Cranepool so you know uh, on, on longevity and just likability and, and not that he was a bad player. He certainly was a good player as well. Um, and, the, and you know, a Siever to me, Seaver and Kuzmin and Cleon and Jones were, were, were pretty much easy picks. Uh, you're right. I never saw a game in the sixties. I was born in 1970. Uh, so the earliest baseball I remember of the Mets was 78, 79, which there was not a lot of Mount Rushmores coming from that group. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly the late 60s, uh, you know, uh, inspired uh, most of my my decision-making for the, the first decade.
0: The book is also great. because it's not just a standard comparison book. It gives great stories and bios of the players that you select for each decade. And as it always, it includes uh, the Brett Topel trademark of great research and great quotes from various sources. And I'm just wondering, you look at how the availability of source materials have changed over the course of your writing career. How has it changed the way you research and structure your books?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. I appreciate any time there's a Brett Topel trademark. I'm appreciative of that, (laughs) uh, as long as it's positive. Um, You know, it's funny. It really has changed. I I wrote the Philadelphia Athletics book, which was my first book uh, writing on my own. I guess that came out in, I want to say, 06. I could be wrong about that. But, you know, in the last 15 years— you know, it, you don't. And for that book, you know, I was crawling around the the the, <laughs> the the basements of libraries at Temple University. There was an archive there called the Urban Archives, which you know, I had special gloves and microfiche and and all of these things. And you know, that's not really the case anymore. I mean, as you know, as somebody who's written so many great books of your own, um, the internet has allowed us to go back and read newspapers from, you know, well beyond the '60s. From for, for me, the '60s was 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 enough because the Mets don't go before that. But, you know, you can read <clears throat> all of the New York papers, whether it's the New York Times or the Post or the Daily News or or Newsday for that matter, um, and get, you know, it's one thing to be able to speak to, to you know, firsthand sources. And I had the, 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 the luxury and the, 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 the privilege of doing that with guys like Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack and, and so many others at Cranepole. But, you know, there's... If you can find an a, a obscure newspaper article from 1967 that hasn't been seen by anybody since 1967, then that's pretty cool. And then being able to to pull from that and to and to, you know, research. I mean, it's really I, I don't know how people did it. I mean, I know how they did it. I don't know how they did it successfully in you know the days before the Internet. But to be able to do all of this research <clears throat> through years and years of newspapers, you know, at three o'clock in the morning from my kitchen is is really something that's changed the way authors can research books. And, you know, it certainly makes it much much more attainable to get, uh, you know, those old materials.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Newspapers.com is just one of the most amazing websites ever invented for sure. Um, Your 60s four, as you mentioned, Cranepool, Jones, Kuzmin, and Seaver. So first of all, how intimidating is it to try and capture in words the essence of Tom Seaver, the value to the franchise when so much has already been written to him as compared to, let's say, you know, the, the modern day, quote unquote, you know, franchise player, Jacob DeGrom.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a really good question, Mark. And I think the the fact of the matter is you can't really put, write anything about Siever that hasn't been written. Right. Because he is probably, I don't even know if it's probably at this point, he's the most written has been the most written about uh player in this franchise's history. I mean, books, magazine articles, you know, newspaper clippings. Um, and, and, you know, and he was fairly accessible up until, you know, the last several years of his life. Um, he didn't do a lot of interviews, but he was accessible. And of course, you know, uh, your friend and mine, Eric Sherman, wrote a great book, uh, which included, I think, one of the last interviews that that Tom ever did, um, you know, when, when him and uh, Art Shamsky went out and interviewed a bunch of the 69 Mets, including Tom. You know, I think what I try to do if I'm writing about Seaver is do it respectfully and do it in a way that is not necessarily putting him, <laughs> on a pedestal or on a Mount Rushmore. But, you know, the fact of the matter is the young fans who follow Jacob DeGrom every day never saw Tom Seaver pitch. It's, it's just it's just almost a fact at this point. You know, I mean, uh, I remember Tom with the Mets only when he really made his comeback in 1983. You know, by the time he was traded in 77, you know, I was seven years old. I don't really remember ever sh- seeing him pitch for the Mets uh, before he was traded to Cincinnati. So, um, you know, my memories of Seaver are from '83. Now, certainly, the '83 Tom Seaver is not the Tom Seaver of the 1960s that I write about. But you know, he he is much more than just another player in franchise history. I mean, his nickname is the franchise. I mean, if your nickname is the franchise, you're pretty special. So I, I don't take it for granted that that these words, uh, that anything I write about him is, you know, I, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground. But I'm I'm, I'm trying to put it in my you know, in my wording and my perspective and my narrative and uh, along with, you know, the rest of the players. And, you know, I wasn't able to talk to Tom for this book, of course, but I did talk to Jerry Kuzman about Tom for this book. And uh, I don't think anybody was closer uh, as far as, well, not closer as far as friends, but, you know, uh, Seaver and Kuzman were one and one A on that pitching staff, certainly for many, many years. So to be able to speak to somebody that that, you know, uh watched Tom so closely at his craft uh really you know gave me gave me a lot of of life in this book and you know to your point writing about Jacob de gram is a lot easier i get to watch Jacob de gram every time he pitches and that's not even a lot of times these days unfortunately. <laughs> but but it's you know as much as has been written about Seaver i think that that it's still an enjoyable thing because you know, NBC used to have a uh, when Seinfeld was was big, and all those shows were big. It's and they ran the repeats in the summer. I remember they used to have a like this slogan: "It said if you haven't seen it, it's new to you." So if you haven't really read about Tom Seaver, then it, it's new to you. And I think that young young Mets fans, uh, uh, I think Tom Seaver deserves to be written about over and over again because uh, that's how special he was as a player.
0: So it's interesting because I, I think an argument, and, and you did bring this up. You know, part of it is to to get people talking and have that debate. So I thought there could have been an argument made for Frank Thomas, who had almost as many home runs in three seasons, as Cranepool had in eight in the 60s. Ron Hunt, who was an all-star two of his four years with the Mets. Was there ever a thought of maybe having an honorable mention in each decade? And have you gotten pushback from fans who have the book and on social media saying, you know, how could you do this? So-and-so should be this instead of that player.
1: So to answer your question, your first question about the honorable mention, I, I just, you know, there are some chapters where you notice uh, where I felt like people were kind of in between, you know, guys like Hojo who kind of fell in between decades or Al Lighter who fell in between decades. So I do write about players other than the the players I put on the Mount Rushmore. Um, and of course, there's also, you know, Mount, Mount Rushmore of players that didn't work out and, and draft fix But by having an honorable mention, I thought it might water down things a little bit. Your point about Frank Thomas is a good one, but if you you know if you go back and, and, and think about Mets history, there's really not much of a comparison. Maybe there is statistically between somebody like a Frank Thomas and um, an Ed Cranepool. Ed Cranepool is associated as, and maybe that's because Ed Cranepool is still associated with the Mets, and maybe that's because he Ed Cranepool played you know for 17 or 18 seasons with the Mets, and he you know he literally spanned decades. Um, but, you know, I haven't gotten a lot of pushback. I mean, I think the, the actually the one part of the pushback, the most pushback I've gotten is from the managerial, uh, chapter, <laughs> uh, pe- people who thought I should not have picked Bobby V, but I should have picked Terry Collins. And that was something, I mean, to me, Gil Hodges and Davey Johnson were slam dunks. Um, and, uh, who my, uh, Gil, uh, K- okay. Stangle, but, yeah. Yeah. But I, just uh, yeah, that, that that's just because of not for winning is obviously but for who he was but honestly the, the toughest decision i had to make on this book was between bobby v and terry collins who both brought the team to a world series the numbers were very very similar and you know i i, I didn't flip a coin but i ended up going with bobby v but there are plenty of people and and they it was some of them on social media some of them just came up to me and go how can you leave terry out and you Sometimes you forget how long Terry Collins managed for the Mets because it was—I don't want to say it was a dark period, but you know that was their "quote-unquote" rebuilding period, and they were doing this and that. And but you know the numbers are very similar, so I guess you know the, the biggest pushback was was that. And I also had people uh, thinking that uh, um, and he, this Lee Mazzilli was my all-time favorite player of the '70s, but he was not in the Mount Rushmore on the '70s. But people have pushed back a little bit about
0: him as well. It's funny you mentioned the managers because that, that, you know, had me thinking, listen, I understand, you know, why Casey's in there. um, But there was also that interesting, and for all the grief we've given Terry Collins over the years, you take a look at what he was able to accomplish. You know, does he belong there? But another guy who's totally overlooked and actually got me thinking, I actually posted about it, is Willie Randolph. Willie Randolph is like, you know, He's the forgotten guy. He's the number two all-time, you know, percentage-wise manager for the New York Mets, and no one even talks about him ever. So, you know, just some of the things that you, you start thinking about when you read this great book. The funny thing is also when you look at the Mets by decade, you'll find it very interesting because they've always had that one great team, 69, 73, 86, 99. 2000 2015 maybe some overlap in the 80s with 86 and 88 and in 2006 as well as 2000 but for the most part they basically only had one really good team in each decade um and the best four of every guy that you've had in the 60s 70s and 80s all had postseason experience the first one out of the 16 not to have any postseason experience was todd hunley and then the remaining eight all have postseason um, experience. How much did that factor into, you know, guys that made Mount Rushmore?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because, you know, that was not by design, certainly. Um, and Todd Hundley was one of, I struggled a little bit whether Todd Hundley was going to get in there. Um, and, and before I decided to put Todd Hundley in there, I actually did some interviews about Todd Hundley, I spoke to Mackie Sasser about Todd Hundley, uh, and uh, you know who, and they were you know on the catching uh, squad together. Um, and it kind of convinced me that Todd Hundley, you know, speaking of him and some other people, that Todd Hundley belonged there. Of course, he had that one unbelievable season with the home run record. Um, he was a, he was a tough catcher. I think he was a he was a, a hard nosed player. I, I don't think it. I necessarily, I certainly did not um, consciously pick people who who made uh, the postseason for the Mets. But as you said, the Mets didn't have a lot of success throughout the decades. So the fact that, you know, the 86, all four of the 80s uh, Mount Rushmore come from the 86 Mets. Well, that's not by accident. If you look (laughs) at the roster of the 80, 81, 82 Mets, you know, nobody was coming off of Mount, you know, going on to a Mount Rushmore from those teams, you know, whether it was Claudel Washington or, you know, Alex Trevino or Frank Tavares. I mean, the the, the Mets of those years, I don't have to tell you, from like 70, what, 77 to, to 83, it was a, it was a, it was a putrid group. So there's not a lot of Mount Rushmore type talent. So the fact that a lot of the most of the Mount Rushmore players ended up being postseason is is a complete, you know, I think derivative of the fact that you know, like you said, there was really only one or two teams mm. per decade that put it together for the Mets, and they those teams put it together because they had really good players.
0: So you dip your toe in the water for the 2020s, and I thought it was a very neat touch as you bridge generations by including Alyssa Rose in that chapter. You mentioned DeGrom, and, you know, obviously that's a huge question mark because we don't know his health. Conforto might not even be here when the season starts. If I was a betting man, I'd say Lindor, Alonso or probably locks. If we re-sign Baez, he'd be my third. Healthy Jake rounds that out. But maybe it's a guy like Nimo or Batty or Ronnie Mauricio or, or Francisco Alvarez. That's the fun part. If you go back and look at Met yearbooks over the years and you look at the on the farm guys, the next great ones, it's never the ones you think are going to be the guys that end up. Like, we would have never thought Jacob DeGrom would be the guy over Matt Harvey. Um, you know, it was always like the guys like Leroy Stanton, Mike Vail, Dave Schnecks, you know, that were going to be the guy. So it, it, it's so cool. It, it's such a, a great book. We mentioned in the open this is your fifth book, four of which have been Met-centric. You're cementing your place as one of the keepers of Met history. What is it about this franchise that speaks to you, and where did that passion come from?
1: So, I mean, the, the passion question is, is, is easy. That came from my parents. I mean, my parents were both uh, big Met fans. My my dad is a uh, you know was a New York Giant fan, a Willie Mays fan. He was the one arguing for May, Mays in those arguments with my grandfather. Um, and and I think that I. I actually took that passion and 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 raised it up a notch. I think, you know, I I was uh you know I was always the remote throwing uh guy who was uh, if the Mets lost a tough game the remote was going flying across the room. My dad is much more calm than I am, um, although equally frustrated. But the passion for for sports and for baseball and for the Mets certainly came from there. And you know I think that. Over the years, you know, um, my my wife once said to me, "Well, why do I don't understand why you root for this team? They always lose." And, uh, you know, I like to say it's really easy to be a Yankee fan. Although I say that jest, because you know, there was certain plenty of years where the Yankees were were not good at all. When the Mets were really good in the eighties, and um, you know, I I think that I appreciate you saying that. I cement my I'm cementing my. Uh, place in in, in Mets history. I I write about it because I love it. And I I write about, I I think you can only really write about what you're passionate about. And uh, now I'll be honest, I did not think I'd write this many books on the Mets and uh, dare I say uh, another uh, along the way, but um, it's coming along the way, as you know. But I mean, I think that it's one of those things that I joke about it at this point. I'm like, well, if they keep asking me to write them, I'll keep writing them. But like, (laughs) How many how many books can one person write about the Mets? And and just when you think everything is written about a team, um, there's always something else to say, and there's always a different way to say it. I love doing it. Uh, they're all labors of love. You know, I'm I'm I, I, I'm not putting any extensions on my house uh, off the royalties. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, if I could fix the, a leak with one of them, I'll be happy. But you know, it, it's 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 really not the point. It, it, it's 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 I love to write. I love baseball. I love the Mets, and it's been a a happy marriage of all those three things, and uh, you know there are there are certainly worse things than writing about uh, what you love.
0: You know, it's interesting. While I was reading this, I'm saying to myself, "How has Brett never done Met Fantasy Camp?" But I'm thinking maybe Brett and I should go down to Met Fantasy Camp next year.
1: All right. Well, listen, that that I would love to do Met Fantasy <laughs> Camp, but you have to understand. Just because I can write books about the Mets doesn't mean I'm going to do anything if I put a Mets uniform on. I can only hurt any reputation I've built, I think, by stepping on that field.
0: Uh, I've been to Met Fantasy Camp. Don't worry about that. We'll (laughs) we'll talk about that next week in studio. All right, Brett, we'll see you next week. Brett Topel, author of the great new book, Mount Rushmore of the New York Mets, the best players by decade to wear the orange and blue. And of course, the host of BT Talks Baseball every Sunday night at 7 p.m. on the 365 Sportscast Network.